Welcome to Solana. We are a super fast blockchain project bringing proof of history and in turn 100,000x speeds to the blockchain ecosystem. This podcast is a discussion between our core staff, industry leaders, and top contributors to our open source project. Find out more at solana.com. That's S-O-L-A-N-A.com. And you can also follow us on Twitter, at Solana. Now, on to the show. Hey, hi, everyone. This is Alex from Nier. Uh, and I'm on this awesome podcast today, so let's see how it goes. Hey, uh, this is Anatoly, and uh, you're on the No Sharding podcast. So, Alex, I think we met last year at a conference, and you guys were just starting, and I think we were just maybe two months ahead of you, right? Yeah. Solana, we were like, we, we got the company going, and I was already kind of building stuff, and I met you guys, and you're like, hey, we're going to do this crazy scaling solution. I was like, hey, you're, we're competing with you to the death. But it ended up you guys were cool and, uh, and friendly and you're working on something totally different than what we're doing. So you want to maybe talk about Nier a bit? The primary focus of Nier, I guess, is to build something that people can actually use. So, you know, to build, <laughs> to build a blockchain for which you can develop easier, uh, but also so that the applications you build are easy to use. Uh, but from technology perspective, under the hood, one of the parts of the usability is for the blockchain needs to be faster than what, the, what is available today. So the way we make it faster is through sharding. We make it such that not everybody who's operating the blockchain is validating every shard, is validating every transaction, right? So if you have 10 million transactions, we don't force every single validator to validate all of them. We split them in some way and make some validators validate some of them, some other to validate some others. And then you tie it all together in such a way that it's very unlikely that's, that something goes wrong and, and a, an invalid transaction goes through. I mean, that that's like really like the primary difference. You know, when I started Solana, I didn't even think of sharding because I was really focused on this. I'm going to, I know hardware, I'm going to make it work faster with hardware, right? To me, like, it seemed like the only way to do it. And I was terrified that everyone else is thinking the same thing and I need to move as fast as I can. But it turns out no one else is thinking the same thing and we might be the only ones crazy enough to do it. So why is sharding hard? Why is it such a hard problem that there isn't like this one design that everyone's like, oh yeah, that's the sharding design? First, I think there is sort of kind of the one design that everybody comes up with. Like if you go, if you do some survey, if you go online, find some sharded blockchains, then load their white papers, they will be very similar. Uh, But the complexity lays in the fact that because not everybody validates every transaction, you need to be meaningfully certain that if someone at some point did try to, to approve a transaction which is invalid, that was noticed and the transaction didn't actually settle on the blockchain. So the idea here is that on any blockchain which is not sharded, on any blockchain where everybody validates every transaction, the concept of an invalid transaction doesn't exist, like of an invalid finalized transaction. In the sense that, you know, if you run Solana or if you run Bitcoin for that sake, if you run a node, you will go through the beginning of times and you will validate every single transaction that ever happened. You know, the blockchain is valid. Though I guess it becomes a little bit hard even if you're not running a shorted blockchain, right? If Solana is processing, I don't know, 700,000 transactions per second and it's actually at capacity, then 10 years in, replaying all the transactions will become pretty hard, right? It'll only take two years of compute at any given time at most. To validate all the transactions. But the number of transactions grows, right? Sure, but compute doubles every two years. Well, yeah, if that that happens, then yes. 
So yeah. the, I mean, we're right because it's trivially parallelizable. The number of cores will yeah. double the amount of processing you do. Right, but you you, ne you never know when it will actually plateau, and the amount of compute compute will stop doubling every two years. So single core performance is definitely plateaued, but mm -hmm. the the square area right of silicon that people ship is going to continue doubling. Well, yeah, I, I'm I'm by no means an expert there, so I cannot <laughs> argue here. But so so even today, when when people spin up an Ethereum node. Majority of them actually are not validating all the transactions from from the beginning of time What they do is they say well Here's the block for, which I know is the heaviest today. So presuming I'm not eclipsed in any way It got to be that it corresponds to the valid chain or at least like if I go one day back from that yeah. block That means that either that block as of one day ago is valid or Someone for one day controlled more than 51% of miners and, and, and was building on top of an invalid block, which for majority of people is, a, is sufficiently convincing to choose the chain and not to validate everything that happened before that block. So sharding kind of uses the same idea. We, we say that in the moment when a block is produced with some subset of transactions, a subset of all the validators of all the block producers in the, in the system, they attest to the block. And if the block is invalid, you can provide a cryptographic proof and you can deprive those people from yeah. from some value, right? And so the idea is that if you're looking at some chain that has been built for a year, if everything is built properly, you sort of know that if that chain has anything broken in it, someone would have lost a lot of money. So yeah. you're still relying on um, slashing to validate, the, yeah. to, to, to provide yeah. the security between the shards. I think in the blockchain space, sharding historically can mean one of two different things. So one is what we built or what Ethereum is building, where you make an assumption that it's impossible for anyone to validate all the shards. Or at least it's impossible for majority of actors. Yeah. Maybe like hypothetical Coinbase who does need to be certain everything is valid. They might buy a huge cluster and validate all the shards, but you expect that majority of validators in a decentralized system, they cannot validate most of the shards. And there's another school of sharding with like Quark, Chain, and Kadena, where the idea is that it is the expectation that majority of entities are validating majority of shards. Some yeah. of them might be validating on their subset at least in Kadena's case, I think in Quartian they actually expect everybody to validate all of them. But it is expected that most of them validate all the shards. So in this case, you can still rely on yourself replaying all the transactions, right? So, so that school of sharding is not relying on slashing, they use proof of work, they're not yeah. using proof of stake. But in the school of sharding that Nier and Ethereum are in, you do need to rely on slashing because someone needs to lose something very, something that has a lot of value if they miss you're, you're also relying on slashing just for the internal shard validation, right? Because each shard is running its own consensus. So not, not in the latest near design. So what we've been building since April is a little different. Oh, so, cool. so when we started near, our initial design was very similar to what many others built, right? To, to like if you if you download any sharding paper, if you download Harmony, for example, or if you download Multivac, uh, they, they they all sort of similar, and they, and and we had the same design. That, that's what you would come up with if you just sit with a piece of paper and try to design sharding, uh, and the idea would be something along the lines of let's have not one blockchain but multiple blockchains every blockchain will run its own consensus and there's going to be one overarching blockchain it's usually called beacon chain i think yeah. it comes from ethereum and, yeah. and many people just to use the term and on the beacon chain the idea is that every time the block is produced on the short chain the hash of it goes to the beacon chain and the fork choose rule on the short chain respects the last block that was snapshot to the beacon chain yeah. so so for example if there is a longer chain 
that does not have a block which is on the beacon chain, that chain will not be respected. Yeah, yeah. Right. And so the idea then is that unless beacon chain forks out, if a block is finalized on the beacon chain from the shard chain, the shard chain cannot fork out. Okay. Like they call this yeah. concept shared security. So the beacon chain is the, li the linearizer for the blocks yeah. coming up from the, yeah. from the shards. Okay. Right. And so that, that's like the, the design of sharding that many protocols use. Uh, and that design, we, we spent a lot of time this year, last year, sort of promoting the idea that that design has a huge security hole, which is in, in that design, I guess what is important to mention is that the block producers, the people who produce blocks in every shard, if they choose which shard to, to produce blocks for, that is obviously insecure because an adversary with very little yep. cash power or stake power can just throw all of their resources to one shard and just overtake it, yep. right? And so they need to be assigned randomly. And here the problem is that while you can do some math and prove that, let's say, if the total population of block producers has less than 25% of malicious actors, then every shard will have less than 30 guaranteed if you choose constants properly, just due to the fact that you sample from a... If you sample from a collection which has certain distribution, your sample will have similar distribution, plus minus variance. So, right. So, yeah. I mean, like, if you do, like, you know, 10,000 choose 100, right? That's yeah. a huge number. So the yeah. combinatorially, you should be able to choose random 100 slots, right? Out of, right. Out right. of 10,000 that represented distribution that is very unlikely to have a... Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So, so, so that, that, that's usually the idea. Every protocol will choose two constants, the size of the total population of validators and size of a right. single shard. And then they will run that formula to say, yeah, you know. If the total population has less than twenty five percent, we 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 certain that the uh, sample has less than thirty three. But don't you end up with any significant stakeholder basically validating every shard? Because if I have ten percent, yes. that means I have like a thousand yes. slots, right? Yes. And so the idea there is that if you significant stakeholder, you're expected to have hardware. So you should be capable of validating all the shards. But in a sufficiently decentralized system, those significant stakeholders should not control too large of a percentage. You want them to control like less than 30, maybe less than 40% combined. And you want the long tail of the smaller stakeholders. So those, those small stakeholders, they cannot validate all the shards. They have a smaller stake. They have less hardware available to them. But then the security issue in that model, where in practice it probably doesn't work very well, is that the adversary will not try to control a large percentage of the population before the sampling happens. The adversary will wait for sampling to happen, wait yeah. until they know who is validating which shard, and then they will just try to identify people in a specific shard, go to them and try to adaptively corrupt them. Yeah. Uh, and that is going to be very cheap. If you have a hundred of shards, those people in one of the shards, they only, that's 1% of the total stake, right. right? And that stake is the only thing that is valuable to people. That's the only thing they can lose. So you can go there with the, that stake X2 and just bribe them, give them the stake multiplied by two. Which or would, remote code execution, right? Well, that, 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 that is a separate topic. That's That's more... That's, I mean, more, that's, that's a more likely yeah. attack, right? Yeah. We're, we're, we just wrote this code over the last year, coding till 3 a.m., drinking a lot of coffee, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. well, what's going to happen with all of these chains when right. they launch? Yeah, so, so it's a little different because if there is remote code execution, it's likely that most of the shards will be attacked. So, so it is more likely that the society will be okay with the hard fork. So at least in my mind, this is, this is less of a risk than if you do, like if you corrupt a single shard, that might not be revealed for a while, and it might not be sufficient for the... But but like a sophisticated attacker, right? One is anyone with a significant stake has higher levels of security, right? They do some kind of proxy signer that's yeah. in a sandbox and stuff like that. But if you're talking about an extremely large distributed network of unsophisticated low-stake nodes, 
they're likely storing their keys on their computer that they're running this, right? Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. It's, it's just a bunch of like, you know, poorly configured devices. And right. you're hoping that the aggregate security of that is higher. Yeah. But, but I think the bigger point here is that if a single shard gets corrupted, it doesn't matter if it was corrupted by bribery or remote code yeah, execution. Yeah, yeah, I agree. You need the system to be able to recover from it. But remote code execution is a, is a slightly different concept because if remote code execution is discovered, you do need a hard fork no matter what. Because the system will, will continuously... Like, once you discover the remote code execution, for you, an attack costs zero. So you can continuously attack the system. But it, right, might, the it, system loses. it might not be an attack in your code, right? We're talking about, like, hardening right. the, the whole... Oh, I right, see what you said. Right, the entire stack needs to be mm -hmm. hardened. Like, we're booting up our tour de sol right now, and the, there's a set of professional validators that understand the that they're storing keys that are custody of a lot of value, right? <laughs> and those need to be stored properly, but there's not 10,000 of them. And if you want to network with 10,000, you're talking about poorly configured devices. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a risk. And so now from here, so let's say with the adversary does manage to corrupt an entire shard, then they cannot do a fork into the past from the last block, which was snapshot to the beacon chain. But what they can do is they can create an invalid block. And if they, if they manage to corrupt two thirds of the validators, they will sign on it and they will snapshot it to the beacon chain. The beacon chain has no way to validate it. The beacon chain doesn't have capacity to validate all the shards. And so now we have a block finalized that is completely invalid. And uh, if you do some cross-shard communication to another shard, again, another, another shard doesn't have capacity to validate all the shards from which cross-shard communication is happening. So also they, they will respect the block. They will check the Merkle proofs. They will say, yeah, yeah, that's great. Let's execute it. If like over 30% of the, or 33% of the stakeholders are the large validators that validate every shard, then the network should halt, right? Because they're like, oh, screw this, right? We're not validating this block. Right, yeah. So if over 33% are validating every shard, yeah, at least it will halt. Yeah. Right. Which is also very, very bad. You, you sort of not as bad, not as bad yeah. as somebody selling right. your token, converting yeah. it to Zcash and being yeah. gone, right? So, so <laughs> technically, if more than thirty-three percent validate all the shards, that should be extremely complex to actually corrupt sixty-six percent of a shard. So, so li likely you will corrupt at least few of the bigger stakeholders in that case, right? So, so that that is uh, that is not as bad. So that problem is called state validity problem. Uh, you, you need some extra measures to validate state. There are some common solutions to that. The most common solution is you say that uh, there is some period after the block is produced when everybody can challenge it. Uh, and so that problem brings us to a sec second problem, which is way more complex problem, which is called data availability problem, which is if you actually do control 66% of a shard, you will produce the invalid block, but you will not send it to anyone. You will only send the header of the block and the Merkle proofs that are needed for whatever shard communication you're, you're initiating. But you will not send the block to anyone. And so... The honest actors in the shard, they cannot validate the block. They cannot prove it is wrong. And so they cannot challenge it, yeah. right? And so you need some way of ensuring that every block that is produced on the shard chains is available to everyone. So that's a significantly more complex problem. And, and very few protocols actually actively addressing it. And uh, uh, Ethereum Serenity has a solution. Polkadot has a solution. And we have a solution which is almost identical to Polkadot's. Uh, so what is the solution? Uh, both Ethereum hours and Polkadot solution, they all rely on erasure code in one way or yeah. another. So effectively okay. you need, when the block is produced, it is, uh, it's erasure coded. The shares of the erasure code are distributed to some large percentage of people. And you, you somehow make yourself convinced from, by sampling that there's sufficient shares to reconstruct the block. Uh, and the difference is that in, uh, in, in Serenity, 
the way it's called fraud proofs. There's a paper by Vitalik and I don't remember the second author. They actually do sampling like from like a, a wide range of light clients. While in Polkadot and Near, the recipients of the shares are the actual block producers, the whole set. Not just the block producers of a shard, but the entire set of block producers. And you need 16% in our case to reproduce the block, which means that if you have a block which has 50% attestations, if you make an assumption that less than 33% will be concealing their shares, Got you it. have enough okay. to reproduce the block. But yeah. the you still can't validate the block, right? You're just trying to fish for... Oh, so, so now... Now that if, if if you have if you have a block which has fifty percent of signatures of all the validators of the global set, you know that sixteen percent are available. You can get those sixteen percent. Now you have the full block, right? Sure, but somebody still needs to go look at the block and right. and decide, yeah. oh, this is a bad block. So this is where I think our approach is slightly different from from let's say Polkadot. In fact, in Polkadot they say that either at least one of the validators in the shard is still honest. Or, or there's an external validator. There's someone external who just cares about chart who exists, who will challenge it. Uh, and we formalized a little more. What we're saying is we have this set of hidden validators. We have a set, let, let's say there's uh, 100 per chart. So if you have 100 charts, there's 10,000 of them. If there's 10 charts, you have 1,000 of them, etc. Those validators are known, but you don't know which charts they're validating. So for a particular validator at the beginning of an epoch, and let's say epoch is like once per day, they they internally run a VRF, which tells them which shards to validate. And during the epoch, they will be validating those shards. But after validating the shards, the blocks, they are not signing on those particular smaller blocks. They're signing on the whole, like on the, let's say, let's call it a beacon chain block, right? Uh, they sign on the beacon chain block saying, whatever shards made it up to that beacon chain block, I validated them uh, and, and everything was good, right? And, and there's a couple more measures there because uh, A, they they can be lazy. That's a common problem with fishermen. That fishermen can be just observing the network and see if nobody challenges. They will not challenge as well. They will say, yeah, probably if the block was invalid, some other fisherman would have fished. So yeah. because I don't yeah. see anything, I will just. Yeah. And so we have a measure against that. Effectively, you first commit. Yeah, there's commit reveal scheme. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and there's a couple more measures. There, there's a couple more smaller attacks where you might like, for example, for data availability, uh, you might want to sign on the block actually not having a share for one of the shards. Because if you don't sign on the block, you're not going to get the reward if the block actually does make it in. So it is beneficial for you to sign on every block. And if someone tries to download your share just to pretend the network is slow or something and not give it. So we have a, some protection against that. Uh, and, and we also, we don't model it as a short, as a beacon chain and short chains because it produces, uh, there are some complexities with modeling it this way. You, need, you have multiple fraudulent rules. If an invalid block is detected, you need to unroll all of them. The interaction becomes complex. So what happens if you have an invalid block? Right. If you have an invalid block, you unroll. So the beacon chain unrolls. And the beacon chain unrolls as well, yes. And so the way we model it is we just model it as a single blockchain. Instead of saying there's, there are shard chains on the beacon chain, we're saying there's one big blockchain with humongous blocks, where the block contains all the transactions for all the shards logically. But physically, the block yeah. is split into those yeah. small small parts. So you can think of it as multiple shard chains, but they're producing blocks as frequently as the beacon chain. But the modeling this, this way is easier because now you only have one fork choose rule. There's one blockchain and that fork choose rule can, like now you can experiment with the specific fork choose rule without thinking how it interacts with the, with the shard chains. But yeah, the beacon chain can unroll if there's an invalid block. So effectively, if you see a block, uh, you either optimistically assume there's nothing invalid in it because someone will lose a lot of money or you wait, there's a certain period beyond which it will not unroll. How do you guys think about slashing? Like my view is that 
you need like a, eventually networks need to be at 100% slashing. Right. So we were actually building 100% slashing. We just now started thinking if that's too harsh. <laughs> you know, it's people, just scary, right? Yeah, and people can get slashed uh, for. But it also depends slashing for what, right? Slashing for being offline. Initially, we did not plan to slash at all. For being offline, we were just we just kick you out uh, after a couple epochs. We're thinking right now whether it should be the case or not. Whether there should be some slashing for being offline. The problem with it is that you cannot cryptographically prove someone was offline. Someone can just get censored. You know, but like if the network yeah. doesn't like you, then yeah, but still, <laughs> you, you, you shouldn't lose money because network doesn't like you. That's right, yeah, <laughs> right. Uh, and so maybe kicking out is just good enough, and they're just not allowing you to rejoin, which is sort of like a small slashing, but it's more more of depriving you from a reward, which people I think psychologically are more okay with than yeah. actually losing money, even though yeah. it's kind of the same thing. Yeah. But then if if you produce a straight up invalid chunk, chunk is the term we use for the small part of the block which corresponds to a particular shard. So that's something yeah. which would be a shard block. In a more classic design, so there the the the, sla- the the amount get you get slashed for should be pretty large. That you can prove cryptographically. Yeah, you can right. prove cryptographically. Yeah, or double signing. Yeah, right. But, and and there the biggest the biggest concern is that if there is a bug in the code, you can get slashed. Uh, but the idea is that if you got slashed due, due to the bug in the code, the, the chain should probably yeah pay you back. There should there should be some process built into the chain where the chain can agree like simple things like that. Such hard forks, quote unquote hard forks, they should be on the protocol level, simple to do. Like the the society should be able to agree on the fact that someone was slashed due to the bug. If it's yeah. if it's like a catastrophic bug, I think yeah. that the danger is that if you have a an exploit that somebody's very clever and just kind of siphons off, you know, like mm-hmm. the Superman three attack where they get the rounding error of every transaction or something like that. Right. Then it becomes very hard to undo that state. Right. So. If that happens, if someone just applies some invalid state transition and like slowly builds up something, that again should go through the social consensus. Yeah. The social consensus could be, well, you know, we messed up, let's, let's keep the money that they earned or just like do something surgical, like remove money, yeah. like just subtract the amount we believe that was clearly maliciously acquired. But there are already proof of stake systems running and people already get slashed. People got slashed for double signing a couple times. People got slashed for, uh, I don't think anyone ever got slashed yet for producing invalid blocks, right? But double signing, you can address it on a level that even not very sophisticated block producer would not create double signing. For example, in our case, we don't use BFT consensus per block. So on BFT consensus, it's a little hard because what was happening is that the node would sign on something, go, go offline, go online back. It will not have any on-chain information about their signature. And they messed it up and they don't have local information yeah. because it was a different yeah. uh, device. So they signed again and they got slashed, right? But in reality, in our case, we use what is called finality gadget. It's a slightly different construction which sends certain messages over time on the blockchain. They're all on-chain. There's no off-chain communication. And so when you recover again, you synchronize the chain, you know everything you've done. Well, minus any lost votes, right? Any yeah. lost votes, but the votes... Expo. The votes can only go like one block ahead. Yeah. And so, so you if you wait. spin up the node, as a safe, you can just wait for one yeah. block and then start yeah. participating, right? It also has its own issues. If everybody went down, everybody recovered, you, you stole. Yeah, we, we have a similar approach. You know what's interesting about that is that I don't know if anyone's coined this term, but I think I heard Zaki use it called asynchronous safety. Like with Cosmos or Algorand, if I understand correctly, the blocks are fully finalized from the single round. Mm-hmm. If you don't do that, an attacker observes kind of a, a larger portion of the consensus state. And 
my intuition is that the safety of those networks is lower than 33%, simply because a dynamic attacker observes a larger portion of everyone's state and can kind of pick and choose and, and force the network to create more forks than necessary. So at least it, with a denial of service, it seems obvious to me that if I'm an attacker and observe the network trying to come to consensus on some forks, I always choose the fork that's least likely to come to consensus. Right, but then it's not safety, it's liveness, right? Sure. You, usually for, mo- for for any consensus yeah. or like finality gadget, you can easily prove the safety to be right. 33%, yeah, yeah, but yeah. liveness, yes, yes, liveness is a bigger yeah. problem. Yeah. Like for example, in case of Tendermint, you, you can show, like liveness is also provable. Yeah. You can show that no matter what sort of delays the adversary tries to cause, a block will eventually get finalized, yeah. assuming partially synchronized network, which is a very meaningful assumption in practice. Yeah. Finality gadgets are worse in this sense. Not a single finality gadget in existence today has a liveness proof, at least not that I know of. All right, so both Caspers don't have liveness proofs and Grandpa doesn't have a liveness proof. They all have what is called plausible liveness. They show that they will never get in, into a state from which no set of messages can finalize a block. But beyond that, they're just saying, you know, from any state you can finalize a block, uh, but an adversary can be like doing something yeah, you know, funky. Yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. And so we use a finality gadget. Like I'm playing with the liveness proof right now, but we don't have it either, right? So yeah, so there's a good chance that uh, an adversary can, if they control network to a sufficient extent, uh, just continue producing like on two different forks. But it's a, it has never been, been done in practice so that the proof of stake chain has two competing forks building up concurrently. It could be possible, but was never pulled off yet. I've done a bunch of simulations, but that's simulations are only simulations, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> so you guys are, um, do you want to talk about the, the VDF thing that you guys are oh, the proof of, Yeah, yeah, we can talk about yeah. it. It's, it's, at this point, it is not clear if we're going to use it, but yeah, okay. we're looking into proof of space time. So the idea, why we're looking into it is because proof of stake has this attack called long range attack, yeah. which is pretty painful. And it's, it, it, it feels to me very practical. Right, so many people discard long-range attack as something that is hard to pull off, but it feels to me that it's actually not that hard because like, all you need to do is acquire 66% of the keys at some particular point in the past. And in the past, those keys cost nothing for the, yeah. uh, for the people. And so, yeah, it's probably hard to do, but it doesn't sound completely impossible to so do. Somebody could run a decentralized exchange for all yeah. the keys. Right, <laughs> right. And so there are two solutions, right? There are two big solutions that exist today in... You know, like if a protocol builds proof of stake and they actually do care about like showing some security, they, they will present you one of the two approaches. One is called weak subjectivity, where effectively you say all the online nodes, if they see a fork, which diverged more than some time ago, like let's say four months ago, yeah. they will not respect that fork, even if it's heavier. And so therefore, if all the people who stake, or rather if clients go online more frequently than, than that period of time, so let's say they have to go online every two months, uh, then nobody will get fooled because everybody will observe I mean, the there, current chain. There's kind of, if you use old keys, right? Yeah. The heaviness goes away because you simply observe a totally new chain. Right, but there's some fork choice rule, right? The BFT consensus per se cannot be the fork choice rule anymore because both blocks are finalized on both chains. Right, so like client would effectively yeah. see a new genesis right. block from their perspective. If I, if I connect and I am yeah. on chain A, yeah. Right, I see a cert- effectively like almost like a old school VeriSign certificate chain of, yeah. of validators. Right, but so here's the idea. Right, so there's some other for so so Cosmos, for example, will just shut down 
if there are two competing chains, which is one way to do that. They're effectively saying we favor safety. You have two competing chains, safety clearly violated, so let's just shut down. It's, it's the safer thing to do, right? But many other blockchains, Ethereum, for example, they use this concept of quick subjectivity. They're saying that there is some for choice rule, right, which is effectively like the the highest height block finalized yeah. by Casper. Yeah. Uh, but the adversary, because it's proof of stake, there is no resource that they spent. They can easily, once they did acquire blocks in the past, uh, sorry, the keys in the past, they can build the chain significantly longer than the chain built by honest people, because honest people produce blocks every 10 seconds, and adversary can produce blocks very frequently. And so their chain, the for choice rule, will be favoring their chain. But subjectivity says that if I saw some chain, and there is now a heavier chain which diverges more than four months ago, I disregard that heavier chain because... So, uh, problem is, like, if you try to use a VDF, mm -hmm. a fork choice rule, you have to have all your validators run a new liquid nitrogen cooled ASIC. <laughs> oh, but, but, so, so before we go to the VDF, right? So, the weak, so why weak subjectivity doesn't work? Because... Uh, the existing clients will not get fooled, but when there is when a new client yeah. starts, a new client needs to learn that this other heavier chain is not respected by anyone. So you need some sort of social consensus. Like effectively, you, you need to agree on a new genesis block every now and then. Yeah. My view is that like people that discount these attacks just don't understand the scope of it. Like imagine if you have right now, like let's say like you have, there's like a hundred million dollars worth of volume on some chain. It's a large number to me and you, right? Mm -hmm. It's a relatively small number to the rest of the economy. And imagine if there's like a trillion dollars worth of volume now. Yeah. Then the attacks, these attacks become very much worth, you know, worthwhile to pull yeah, off, exactly. right? If you're, right. you know, a bunch of smart kids out in Eastern Europe that, <laughs> that so, have nothing better to do, right? Then why yeah. not? <laughs> so there's a second solution, which is, uh, I think I would, I would rather trust the network which uses the second solution. And the second solution is used by Algorand and Aroboros. So Cardano, which is effectively that the binary that is running, the default binary that you download after the epoch ends destroys the keys, right? And so now to acquire 66% of the keys in the past, at that point in the past, 66% needed to alter their binaries, not to destroy the keys. Like a reasonable actor would do that. The question is like how many... But not if, yeah. not if there's a trillion dollars. Right, stake, yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> at which point you, you might do it for the, for the future benefit of you being able to sell the keys, but it's beneficial for you to recompile yeah. the binary and remove right. it, right? And so because of that, we want to walk away from the proof of stake and we want some resource, but we, but proof of work is, is disastrously bad, right? Like the environment damage from proof of work is, is disastrous. And then you have all the problems for basic resistance and, and pooling, like, you know, because of pooling, how many pools you need to corrupt today to yeah. to do a fork on Ethereum, three or four, right? So that that's a big problem. And it's very hard to, to discourage pooling. fork is different from a long-range attack. Right, but but the, you, you won't neither. Even if I take over 51% of Bitcoin right now, I can produce blocks and it costs me the electricity of 51% of the network. But right. eventually my money runs out. Right, but if you control 51% of hash power short term, it's sufficient for you to pull off an attack where you pay someone a huge amount of money, wait for whatever number of blocks they think is sufficient, they provide you some service, like, for example, they pay you cash, it's an OTC transaction, and then you use your 51% to fork it, right? That, that, that's a pretty big attack. You, you want to avoid it as well. Except somebody can also write a transaction based on a block before the attack and bribe the miners to ignore my fork, right? So there, yeah, there's, yeah there, 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 are, there are many things at play, yes. <laughs> right, so it's not as simple. I honestly yeah. think that proof of work strikes this weird balance where we might never see this, like, kind of... 
It, it's very disappointing that, that Binance did not publish the keys when they got hacked. Yeah, you yeah, know, when yeah. they lost 7,000 yeah. Bitcoin, if they just published the private key, it yeah. would have been an awesome social experiment yeah. just to see if miners will actually would have picked up on it and, and yeah. for it. It's unfortunate they didn't do that. That would have been great. But anyway, so what we're looking into is there's this concept of proof of space time, which is, I think it's pioneered by Space Mesh, but it is also something that Chia Network is doing. And we're trying to get meetings with both of them to discuss like their latest advances. But the idea is that proof of space time is, is similar to proof of work in many senses, in the sense that there is some resource which you use to create blocks, but it doesn't burn electricity. Like you occupy a lot of space yeah. for a large period of time, electricity is not getting burned, and you're just computing a VDF in the meantime. And you don't really need a VDF, you need proof of elapsed time, which is easier than a VDF. I mean, when they use like Equihash, which is like proof of RAM, basically. Proof of RAM. Well, I didn't look into it. Okay. But that's that's okay. another alternative. Like, we want some proof of resource which doesn't burn electricity. I guess RAM is using electricity, right? Yeah, but not... Yeah, not as much? Yeah. Right. But then designing the full system. So all those proof of spaces, they don't have the same property as proof of work. It's not a lottery, which is very short short term. You need to do that for a long time. And so the, the dynamics are very different, right? And so Chia's green paper, their construction, which is pretty sophisticated, it only works if honest actors control more than 61% which is worse than 50. We have some construction, we're going to be publishing it soonish, which sort of mirrors proof of space time and proof of stake uh, and, and create something very meaningful, I think, which doesn't have long range attacks, but also you cannot pull at all, which is a nice benefit. And uh, there's no lottery, so you know how much you're going to make. But it is not set in stone yet. It's unclear if we're going to be using it. Uh, so it's one, both yeah. using both space and time and stake. When you say proof of space time, if you compare it to proof of work, proof of work in this case would be proof of CPU time. Right, yeah, yeah. Right, so it uses space over some period of time, same way as, as no, proof of work uses storage. CPU over... Right. Yeah, but you need storage. Uh, but it also uses proof of stake, yeah. So okay. there's a finality gadget. And so the idea is that short term, to revert a block, you need... And by short term, I mean like one, two epochs. You need to corrupt 33% of total stake, which is super expensive. Once the stake is unstaked, this is when the space time kicks in. And there, the biggest problem you need to tackle is, I call it medium-term attack, where for someone it would be cheaper to buy space short-term. Like short-term, they control almost 50% of stake of space, and so they can revert like a one-day worth of blocks. Do you think these systems that have so many complex pieces can actually ever function? So the idea is that it's actually not that complex. <laughs> like like if, you, if you look at the design, like if I, if I show it to you on the whiteboard, it's actually pretty simple. It has only two moving parts, right? The proof of space and proof of stake. And the way they interact is not that complex. And it's pretty easy to reason about what happens if the adversary has certain amount of stake, certain amount of space, or the combination of the two, uh, and at which thresholds they can they can perform long-range attack. Well, never short-term attack, you need 33% of stake at least, or medium-range attack, in which case you need either very large percentage of space or smaller percentage of space, but also large percentage of stake. Right? And the thresholds are very well understood, and, and the interaction is pretty is not that complex. But the problem there is that proof of space-time research is not that advanced yet. Like, for example, proof of time, it's not ASIC resistant, right? Yeah. And uh, and proof of space is also not that simple. Yeah. So there are there are problems there. VDFs are hard. I mean, yeah. like the real VDFs. What we're using is kind of a, a a trick. But like, if you're talking about like the constructions that use like an RSA group yeah. or like anything like that, twenty forty eight bit multiplication is a whole pile of computer science right. problems. <laughs> but the beauty is that we don't need proof of, we don't need a VDF, we need a proof of elapsed time. Okay. And so proof of elapsed time, there's this construction again by Chia network, 
which is very similar to what you use, where you just compute sequential shards, uh, but you don't need to present all of them and validate all of them. You, you, need, you can sample them in a smart way that you can be certain that at least that many were computed. But it is not a VDF in the sense that the adversary might have at some point like messed up one computation right. step. Yeah. And so the output is not unique. But the check construction doesn't allow the adversary to compute them in parallel. You they re- still have to be serial. You're relying on some um, trusted setup, right? Or no. Some, you need the, the input to be secure, in, I think, in Chia. So they're using BQF proofs or, or B, some, some class group. No, no, you're thinking of a different thing. You think, yeah, so Chia has too much research. Okay. Uh, so, <laughs> so, so you're thinking about the one which is an alternative to their same multiplication, but without the trusted setup. Yeah, they use some fancy groups. But that's an actual VDF because okay. Chia does need the VDF. It's ironic that they have a great paper and proof of elapsed time that they cannot use themselves. They do need the VDF. <laughs> uh, but they have another paper, uh, which is specifically about proof of elapsed time, which is just sequential shots. It's very similar to what you guys do. So they compute sequential shots, they merkleize them, and there's a there's a little trick they do where the SHA, a particular SHA doesn't just depend on the previous SHA, it depends on the previous SHA and some other things in the Merkle tree, which is being built iteratively. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And while you cannot prove that every SHA was computed properly, for that you obviously need to compute all of them. And so that's why the output is not unique. You can prove that at least on the order of that many SHAs were computed serially, which is all you care for proof of elapsed time. But because the output isn't unique, it's not a VDF, so it's not something that Ethereum would be able to use, or or they themselves, because they do need the unique output. But we don't care. All, all we want to show is that time was spent, so we can use that construction. And that construction, again, like, you know, it's not that easy to... I mean, I, I only know it from you. Yeah. But you're saying that try is almost as fast as it can get, right? I mean, like, within 10x. Yeah. That. And yeah. to get to 10x would, I think, take $100 million and, like, would be really yeah. remarkable. Yeah, <laughs> right. And so, yeah. but even if someone gets 10x, then they still need to have space, which is... I mean, now, now yeah. they can do 10% attack, right? But, yeah. yeah. So, so that's, that's, that's something we're looking into. But whether we're going to use it or not isn't clear yet. The paper we will publish no matter what, because why not? Maybe someone else will find it fascinating and will want to build it. Right. So it's, it's probably like happening this or next week. By the time this podcast is out, it could already be I mean, published. This space is so weird, like especially being in Silicon Valley, because outside of crypto, startups have to show growth, right? <laughs> not research papers. Yeah. Like what they need to show is like, uh, you know, month over month, uh, you know, active user growth. Like that's yeah. within two hundred percent. Yeah, but 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 you know, like near Sasha spends you know day and night working with people. Right, we have beta program. We have like twenty percent growth uh, week over week. But it's obviously going to plateau soon. Right. It cannot stay forever. And and I assume you also guys do that, right? But we do yeah. some business development. We we onboard users. My theory is that the space is uh, not going to grow unless the number of peer-to-peer non-custodial wallets actually grows because that's effectively the size of the current decentralized internet it's just the number of those wallets yeah yeah of course our hypothesis is that i think blockchains bring a lot of value i personally care a lot about decentralized web i don't care that much about DeFi, though i think DeFi is going to be the first biggest breakthrough that that is already happening but there's a lot of value that people can use the problem is that they it is so hard to use blockchain today that majority of people just cannot cannot do that. You know, if, if, yeah, yeah. You, know, if yeah. you try to buy a crypto kitty, it's an involved process. I, I tried to use Augur and I couldn't get it to work. Right, right. And, <laughs> you know, we talk to projects a lot that build on Ethereum today, right? And many of them are happy with Ethereum, but they still see this 
very high percentage. The, the drop-off rate is very high, yeah. right? If they, if they monitor, like from people who come to the web page to people who actually start using the service, the drop-off rate could be between 95 and 97%. You cannot build a reliable business if only 2% of your users actually stay yeah. after going through all the hurdles. So I think usability is a bigger problem to tackle. The blockchains need to be usable. And uh, there are many efforts, but I think those efforts are separate. Right, so there are efforts to like gas stations allow you not to pay gas, like yeah. developers to pay for gas. There are, there's like Porteous and and a couple others who build better onboarding experience, etc. But they all there is Loom network which makes it faster. You know, the transactions don't take one minute to complete because they're running on layer two. But together they work pretty poorly unless some of them start integrating each other with each other. So so I think like a, a good centralized and by centralized here I mean from development perspective a good centralized effort is needed to build a very usable blockchain. So that's what we do, right? And scalability is kind of secondary. Scalability is more interesting to tackle. And people are more interested to hear about the scalability issues and solutions, but usability is what will actually make the difference at the end of the day. Yeah, I agree. Uh, it, it's much easier to do usability if you can use a faster chain. Yeah, of course, right. So, 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 so that's why we're not building enough. You don't have to yeah. solve another set of computer science problems, yep. right? That's right. Gonna... <laughs> yeah. But also, I, th I think why we see so many papers, and now we see more and more good papers being published, like Chain Network, every, every paper they publish is actually pretty good, yeah. right? Uh, I, I think in 2017, most of the papers were, that were published in the blockchain space were not that good. But that's because the actual space is very new, and a lot of problems are not solved. So at that point, you do expect a lot of papers to be published. Well, like if you go to the database world, if you go to Sigmod, one of the bigger conferences, right? Like not many breakthroughs are there because databases has been around for a while. Most of the hard problems are already tackled. So there you, you cannot do much. I, I think those are not conflicting. Publishing papers is, is great, but you know, acquiring users is also very good. <laughs> yeah, I agree. When are you guys going to uh, launch, you think? So there's one deadline we have, which is we need a foundation that takes time. We, we want to do a proper yeah. foundation. We wanted to do Panamian foundation, but optics of a Panamian foundation are terrible. And it's not just optics, it's, it's generally a bad idea. So we're doing a Swiss foundation that yeah. takes time, yeah. right? So, but, but we want to do it properly. So that is pro likely to be the, the biggest blocking factor. But I think we're going to be called complete this year. Whether we can launch this year or not, that, yeah. that depends. Famous last words, yeah. <laughs> like in terms of code, we're very close. Most of the sharding is running. All the code is open. People can come and see. There's a couple of things which are not finished, and, and then we need to, to stabilize it. And we're already talking to the uh, security review companies to initiate the, the security review. Right. So it's it's very close to the launch and very easy to monitor where we are. Yeah. I mean, you guys are making a ton of progress. I poke around the the new protocol Discord sometimes. Yeah. When when are you guys going to launch? Well, we are actually trying to launch oh, like as we speak uh well we boot the network right we're doing dry runs and if we can crash it then we you know try it again until we can't crash it that's basically what launching a permissionless network is right you yeah. try to get a, a group of validators across the world to boot your code and as soon as you can't crash it it's done i see so, so you're running like endless game of stakes you know, going from Google Cloud to the real internet means you're dealing with like, you know, real configuration issues, a bunch of, you know, MTU paths that are at 500 bytes, <laughs> stuff like that. Um, fixing those bugs took a couple of weeks. And the, our last dry run um, stopped when uh, just people went to bed. 
Which is kind of interesting. So it wasn't like a code failure, it was a, like a human failure. Oh, they uh, just shut down the nodes? Yeah, 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 yeah. And, you know, enough of them should, because when you boot up the network, like we're booting everybody with equal stakes, right? So whoever, whoever just happens to be there. So enough of them shut down to where uh, we lost uh, about 40% of the stake, and then the network's like, hey, I can't find super majority, so I'm going to yeah. stop voting, right? Yeah. So, uh, so one thing we, we design is we make the system to favor availability. So even if you lose ninety percent of the stake, Mirror will continue operating, and like after, like for the for the day or two, it uh, depends on how how we configure the length of the epoch. It will not finalize blocks using the finality gadget, but there is still a low level of fork choose rule. So blocks still produced for many use yeah. cases. That's good enough. Yeah, we're we're still yeah. producing blocks, but yeah. the question is what happens, right? But but the <laughs> low level fork choose rule, like we, for example, if you use LMD Ghost, we, we we didn't figure out exactly what it's going to be, but probably LMD Ghost. LMD Ghost is very sticky, meaning that. Unless you do believe that majority who is offline, when they go online, will want to behave, you know, weirdly and not respect the chain, that the chain is probably going to stay. And then in a couple of days, you start finalizing blocks again. But if you favor consistency, you should you should just stall, right? Like, for example, in Cosmos, everybody will stall at that point. So we're still producing blocks. They're just nobody will see super majority yeah. on them. Yeah. Um, that means that when the validators come back online, then they actually join the network, then that entire fork can be fully finalized. Right. But the question is, let's say they're never coming back online. Will at any point, will they be removed from the validator set so that there's a new supermajority? That is the censorship question, right? Do we allow the network to censor offline validators or not? Right now, we don't. Like we, we basically decide that, um, I think when we boot, if you look at Cosmos and their uptime, they basically have like I think ninety eight percent uptime for validators. But but all of their validators are professional validators, yeah. right? So it's uh, yeah, of course, ninety eight is even it even sounds low, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And for our particular approach, since there is no sharding, it means the machines are bigger. Effectively, yeah. the pool of validators we're going after the professional validators. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That, that that's a valid approach. In this case, I think favoring consistency is very meaningful. Yeah. Right. And we we're more like in Ethereum camp where we're saying, let's favor availability. And if someone does want to favor consistency, they can do it locally. You can always locally say if the block doesn't have, if there's yeah, a full yeah, epoch yeah. without super majorities, you just don't respect anything built on top of it, right? Because the, the future epochs, I mean, they have they have a smaller validator set, so there's yeah. still a bit, right? So, so so that's that's our current philosophy. Uh, but I think like so sort of let's call it Cosmos school of consistent networks. It's, it's obviously also like it's a, it's a valid way to build a network. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's crazy that we have to make computer science design decisions like every day. <laughs> well, that, that, that's why blockchain is fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Cool. You want to talk about anything else? You guys have any announcements you want to make? We have a beta program running. So if you're building an application, uh, check it out near protocol.com slash beta. Uh, we also run an ambassador program. We want people all over the globe to, uh, to talk about near. To promote near so if you if you somewhere in the world check it out just google near protocol ambassador program yeah cool that's where we are hey everybody thanks for listening to this episode if you have any questions for our guests or want to continue this discussion please check out our website at solana.com that's s-o-l-a-n-a.com there are links to our Discord where most of our communication happens in the company. Also, you should check out our GitHub page where we post all of our code for you to check out and even help out with. GitHub.com slash Solana labs. You can also follow us on Twitter at Solana. 
Thanks for listening. See you next week. Bye.